Welcome back to Black Muse. But listen, before we get started, I want to give a special thank you and an announcement, if you will, out to Howard Sandifer and his wife, Darlene Sandifer. They are the founders of the Chicago West Community Music Center. And this whole video podcast was their idea. They said, you know what? Let's get up close and personal with some of our celebs and newsmakers. Let's have lively conversations. So we're going to do just that tonight. Tonight's guest is Mr. John W. Fountain. He is a very well-known journalist. He's a tenured professor at Roosevelt University. And right now, he is a Fulbright Scholar teaching at the University of Ghana. He continues to write for the Chicago Sun-Times, but he also has written for the, well, the world's best newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Chicago Tribune. But one thing that he's most proud of is that he's from the west side of Chicago. He's from the west side of Chicago. And he's going to tell us how he went from the west side to the top, the very top of his profession. Please welcome John Fountain. Hey, John. Hey, how are you? OK, OK. Let's get started yeah. at the very beginning. You're over there in Ghana. How, how amazing is that? What, how does it feel to be there? It feels, uh, it feels incredibly amazing to be in Ghana. It is uh, literally a dream come true. I first visited Ghana in uh, 2007, and I was standing in the midst of Ghana, and I said to myself something that I don't think anybody else heard me. I said it was from my mouth and from my heart to God's ears, and that was, I got to bring my family back to see this. This is amazing. And uh, lo and behold, uh, uh, 15 years later, I return as a uh, Fulbright Scholar, and it is uh, just a wonderful, wonderful experience to be here in the motherland. I say from the west side to the west coast of Africa. Yeah, yeah. Now, have you found time to visit the slave castles during this trip? I have. Oh. I have. I have. I have indeed. My first trip I visited, uh, Cape Coast Castle. This time around, my family and and I we we went to uh, Cape Coast Castle, which is in Cape Coast, Ghana, and we also visited Omina uh, Castle, which is the oldest here. And um, it is always a a riveting emotional experience. Uh, we did something else that I didn't do the first time around. That was we went to Slave River, the Anson Maso. Uh, slave River. And that is the place where um, when they marched uh, captives across Africa to the coast, it was the last stop before they went to the slave castle. So you can imagine they've been marching for, in some cases, more than two months in shackles. They were bloody, they were beaten, they were worn. And so before they took them to the slave castle, they would have them bathe in this river. And I will tell you, that was probably even more emotionally overwhelming than the slave castles themselves. And I don't know what it was about it. If it was, if it was the, you know, the quietness of the river and the water and just 
easily able to imagine the horror that transpired there, but it was it was overwhelming, completely overwhelming. Right. But compare that to the slave castles. How? What's the difference? Different emotion. Different emotions is, you know, I felt the same sense of horror. I felt the same sense of, con I felt a sense of connectedness. But I will tell you, and you know, I, 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 I was raised Pentecostal, grew up in the Church of God in Christ, and True Vine Church of God in Christ, my grandparents' church on you know, Roosevelt Road there on the west side of Chicago. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm a God-fearing, God-believing person. My grandfather was raised, his name was George Hagler. He was raised by his grandfather, who was, his name was Burton Roy. And Burton Roy, my great-great-grandfather, was born an American slave. So for me to touch my grandfather, who I, I knew all of my life until he died about three or four years ago, um, was for me to essentially touch slavery. So let me tell you, when I got in the river and I had my, my camera with me and my family was already standing in the waters of the river. And when I stepped into the river, I stumbled. I wasn't off balance before, but I say, you know, I felt this sense of overwhelming connectedness to the pain and the horror and the sorrow and the agony that transpired in that place. And, you know, the docent, who was very excellent at, at telling us the story of the river, one of the things he said was that when they got ready to move from the river to the castle, they had still had to go through, through, the, through the brush and through the woods, essentially, or through the forest. And he said they would take the weakest, those who were most bloodied, who had, who had been on the journey, and they would tie them to a tree so that they could be uh, feastings for feast upon by wild animals, thereby giving the slave caravan safe passage. And so it was just, it was horrific. And then, but, but the other sense is you can't visit those places and feel that sense of horror and pain without understanding that those who made it through the middle passage, the folks from which we spring, the DNA that flows through our veins, Man, those were the strongest people in the world. And yeah. so it gives you this great sense of pride and understanding that this is from who you come from. And, and, the, and the idea that we were not, that our history doesn't begin with slavery. Our history begins here in the motherland where we were chiefs and kings and queens and the smartest of the smart, the genius of the genius, the strongest of the strong and the greatest of the great. And in the words of Maya Angelou, it's no wonder that still we rise. Still we rise, yeah. Would you recommend that every Black American visit Ghana? Would you recommend I that? Would. I would. I would. I, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, Ghana tourism isn't paying me. <laughs> Let me just say that. They're not paying me. But, but I think that Ghana just is being the first um, African nation, uh, sub-Saharan African nation to win, uh, to win its independence uh, from colonialism. It's a rich history here. And I also think that the Ghanaian people are beautiful in that there is, there is a place here in a sense for us to reconnect in quite an easy way with our own past. 
You know, there are a lot of folks who I understand don't particularly care for slave castles and call them slave dungeons, and they are that. But, but, but as an African-American who, as I said, is very aware of my own ancestry, I'm glad they're there. I'm glad I can touch that history. I'm glad that my family and I had a walk, chance to walk through what was called the door of no return. But we walked back through the door because on the other side of the door, it says the door of return because as the ancestors of the slaves that, 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 that formed me and whose DNA I have in my body and my cells and my blood and, and uh, who are part of me, when I walk back through that so-called door of no return, I say, I'm back, we're back. And so when we were at the ancestral, at the uh, slave river, they have a wall in which you can inscribe the name of your ancestors. And I tell you, I'm, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm not into hokey stuff. I just, but I was so overwhelmed and I wrote that I have returned in the name of my grandfather, George Hagler. And in the name of my great, great grandfather, Bertrand Roy, our feet, our souls are back in the motherland. Wow. Wow. That's very emotional, very emotional. So yes. now go, going back to the University of Ghana. So what yeah. kind of things are you teaching and how are the students? Do they compare to your <laughs> Chicago students? Just all, all of that. And how long will you be there in Ghana? How long will you be there? Well, I'm, I am teaching journalism at the University of Ghana in Lagoon and uh, all things journalism. As a matter of fact, I have a class in the morning where I'm going to be teaching. Um, I'm helping them to do, create a mobile journalism project. We're focusing on a place called Medina Market that is one of the largest markets in Accra. And it's not a market like we know. It's not the Mall of America. It's, uh, it is, you know, African, you know, Africans, you know, women, mostly women and men out there selling the wares, everything that can't be had in the crowd is there. And um, it is a busy place, pressing the flesh. And so I'm helping them to organize, uh, to do a mobile journalism project, which we are going to publish to the world by the end of the semester. My plan is to be here originally until August, but I've got to go back to teaching at Roosevelt University in August. And uh, after this grand adventure, I think I need some time off to sort of debrief and also to get together uh, my Fulbright uh, project. In terms of uh, students, you know, I'm gonna say Chicago students, Roosevelt University students are the best students in the world. <laughs> I gotta say that. Of course. Um, but yeah. I, I will tell you what I find about uh, Ghanaian students, uh, University of Ghana, they are incredibly smart, incredibly, I think, um, eager to learn and you know this is a um, this is a master's class that I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in and so a lot of these students you know they obviously they come with with already with at least one degree and um, and everybody here in Ghana seems to speak at least two or three languages but the, the their inquisitive nature uh, their level of in, intellect and, and let me also say and this is not just true of students it is true of Ghanaians in general the level of respect, the way in which they entreat elders or they entreat professors or they entreat people on the street, like, good evening, madam. How are you, sir? Good evening, gentlemen. I'm just like, I'm blown away. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, yes. So that's 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 great. Yeah. Hey, you gave a Black History speech over there called "Our Stories Matter." How how did that go? That went well. You know, it is. I'm a proponent of us telling our own stories. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I will say this: that you know, if I were to go into an Italian American or Irish American, a Jewish American community, I am trained as a journalist to tell their story. Can I tell their story? Yes, I can. Um, but might some of them be offended if I proclaim myself to be an expert on the Irish or the Italian or the Jewish condition? They probably would, and I would understand it. And I'm so sick of other folk who are not African-American claiming to be experts on us. We've got to tell our own story from the inside out. And that is a perspective that is as valid and perhaps in my mind, more valid than one from the outside in. You know, this is, you know, because we're talking about the West Side as well. I well remember Chicago Tribune series, The American Millstone in 1985, in which they said, they said that North Lawndale was a millstone draped around America's neck. And we would never amount to anything. We didn't have middle-class values and so on. And I look back in hindsight at that series, it, even the beginning of the word usage and the jaded perspective and the, you know, the racism that was so evident in that piece. And it's like, how could you purport to even call this journalism without giving some warning that is journalism mixed with a little racism, mixed with a little, you know, <laughs> preconceived notions yeah, about yeah. what life is. And so I'm a proponent of us telling our own stories. So the, the long and short is, you know, the, 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 the presentation went well. It's a presentation that I've done, I've given in Chicago, and one I will continue to give because I think as African-Americans, we must tell our story. I begin it with that presentation by saying there's an African proverb that says, until the lion tells the story, the story will always glorify the hunter. We lions tell our story. Yes. Speaking of stories, you wrote your own life story, True Vine, a young black man's journey of faith, hope, and clarity. And you said that it helped you heal. What did you mean about that? It helped you heal. By saying that I that it helped me heal, writing my book True Vine, what I mean is writing can be very cathartic. And there's an idea that, you know, if I write, some people don't want to write because they don't want people to read what they write. You get to choose, you get to decide whether or not anybody ever sees what you write. And quite frankly, there are pages of True Vine in the chapters that will never see the publishing light of day. But the process itself of going back in time, of dealing with paternal abandonment, of dealing with my feelings of, of shame and um, my angst about growing up poor on the West Side and being the poorest in, in our family, about uh, being a teenage father and, and all of those things, being able to, to get them out onto my computer screen, it gave me a sense of clarity in terms of um, where I was and the fact that 
You know, as they say, what doesn't kill you make, only makes you stronger. And so some things we know that happen to us or some things that we endure, we don't share with anybody. And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I say that to people and they don't believe me, but I really am. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I tend to keep things to myself. And growing up as a kid, I didn't share a lot. I didn't talk about my fears. I didn't talk about the issues that I had to deal with growing up. I didn't talk about my mother's depression. I didn't talk about my feelings of loneliness and abandonment with my father. And my screen, my book, my computer screen allowed me to do that. It allowed me to purge myself of what I will call some of those demons and to, and to really come face to face in a way with my father who um, by the time I, I had two vivid memories of him, one is I'm about four years old and he's being let out of our apartment in the West Side in handcuffs. And the next time I remember seeing him, I'm 18 years old and I'm standing over his casket in Evergreen, Alabama. Uh, he was killed in an automobile accident. Uh, he was drunk and uh, pulled onto the road out of his mother's uh, driveway. Uh, truck impacted him. He was hurled through the uh, windshield of his car, his head hit the pavement, and he was dead. And I had, you know, at the time, I had all of this angst and, 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 and actually anger toward my dad and questions like, why did you never come see me? Why didn't you come to my basketball games or track or cross country meets? And why were you, weren't you at any of the graduations and all the things I did? And I intended to ask him those questions. And standing there at 18, I was just, you know, I couldn't cry. I didn't know what to feel. And yet, you know, as I lived and I returned ultimately to his, his grave, it was an unmarked grave. And I had said my peace and I made my peace. And in making that peace and even taking the journey of writing that, it helps to heal me. The other thing is, and this last thing I'll say about that is, and this is really important. I used to ask my grandmother, you know, saved, sweetly, sanctified, sweetest woman I've ever known in my life. I used to ask her, I said, grandmother, I don't understand why life is so tough for me back then. And she would say, I don't either. She said, but I'll tell you this, you're going to be able to help someone. And so my writing, a sharing of my story, what we would call in church, my testimony, if it can help somebody, then that is healing for me. When I receive a note a couple of some, some years ago from a young man who said, I discovered your book in the library and I read it. And I was in the basement of my mother's house, smoking weed. And I, I connected with your story. And because of your story, I got out of the basement and I decided to go back to school. And then he wrote me a couple of years later and he said, you know what? Not only did I go to school and graduate, but I'm at Morehouse. Whoa. And so, Yes, and so those kinds of stories are even when a Caucasian woman walks up to me in tears and says, thank you for sharing my story. That is rewarding and it is, it is healing for me to understand that my scars and my healing bring healing to other people. Wow. Now you also have a book publishing company Westside Press, yes. yeah. So yes. what led to that? What led to that? <laughs> I'll give you the short version. Okay. Uh, someone said they were going to publish my book, one of my book, Dear Dad. 
and they said they would give me a certain percentage of my book. Mm. And I said, nah, you won't give me a percentage of, you will not give me a percentage of my book that I've written, edited, and done everything except publish. And I said, you know what? It's time to start my own publishing company. And, 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 and there, was a, there was a story about a kid whose name was Rodney McAllister. I encountered Rodney in death. He was a 10-year-old boy growing up in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, I got a story one day while I was a, a correspondent for the New York Times. I got a lead about Rodney that um, one night Rodney had not come home. He was like a man child. His mother had some drug issues. So Rodney McAllister, um, the next morning, a man was walking uh, near a park and he heard some dogs barking. He went back to investigate. And when he went back, he saw the body of later identified as Rodney McAllister. He had been mauled to death by dogs. And people heard the kids screaming that night, but nobody came out to see what was wrong. And so this issue, this story had galvanized people in St. Louis who said, this shouldn't ever have happened in our community. And they were planning a community rally. I told my editors at the New York Times, I was covering a 12 state region. I could cover anything I want as long as there was no breaking news. So I told them about the story about Rodney McAllister. I was good. They said, gave me the green light. I was getting ready to go. And I get a call from my one of my editors and he says, John, uh, we don't want you to go. I said, why not? He says, we, we just don't want you to go. I said, why not? I said, please tell me why you don't want me to go and cover the story. He says, they say we already have a dog story. And there was a story out in California, a couple had been attacked by pit bulls. This wasn't a dog story. This was a story about a little black boy. That's what the story was about. It was about community. It was about how this could happen in America in a city. And, uh, and so I say that was the day that West Side Press was born because no white man and no black man will ever tell me what I can or cannot publish. I will publish it myself. All right, I like that in you. I like that in you. Yeah, yeah. So now how did you avoid the gangs and the drugs and all of that <laughs> coming up? That was easy. Was it? My mama. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. You know, we 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 come. You know, in our neighborhood in K Town, all the fellas understood when the street lights came on, you needed to go in the house, or you or you run the risk of having your mother yell from the top of your apartment your name. And that was, <laughs> you didn't want that embarrassment. And so, you know, mama wasn't, wasn't adverse to, you know, going through your pockets. You couldn't bring in anything that didn't belong to you. You know, we went to Sunday school on, on, on Sunday morning and we came home in the evening and then we went back to church. And, um, and I had to learn and I had to um, get, decent grades. And the other thing is, you know, I had, I had some other, for instance, Project Upward Bound at Northwestern University was a program that um, provided a supplement to my education in Providence St. Mel 
And it wasn't just the education that it provided, but it got me out of my neighborhood. And getting me out of my neighborhood, it gave me, it, it, it insulated me from some of the things that some of my friends fell into because I, I was away and simply I didn't have time in between basketball during the season and cross country and track. Man, by the time I got home at nine, 10 o'clock <laughs> after running all the miles, I was dead tired. <laughs> I wasn't going anywhere but to bed. <laughs> and so I think collectively those things all, and, and my mother, they worked to, to save me from those things. Wow. Now, music was always a part of your life, even as a, yeah. even as a little kid. You played the uh, guitar. Do you still play now? Do you still play the guitar? I, I look at it. I, I own several guitars. My son owns a couple of guitars that I bought him, my youngest son, and he plays saxophone, and my oldest daughter plays guitar. My uh, oldest son plays bass, but man, you know, you know, the keys I play are these keyboard keys <laughs> most regularly and trying to make music out of some of the words that I write. But I was, I love music. Um, I've always loved music. I grew up playing guitar in the church, but I love, I completely love music. I love what Howard Sandifer does and his wife. And, um, you know, with those young people on the west side of Chicago, it is uh, absolutely amazing and captivating, inspiring. And um, so music, music will always be a part of my soul, always. Now, racism in the newsroom. As a Black reporter, did you, and obviously you had to come across it at some point. Could you comment on that? And how did, how did you deal with it? How did you deal with all that? There's a quote that comes to mind. All my life, I've had to fight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and, there, and there's another, you know, racism in the newsroom. It's like, welcome to the NFL. Mm. If you give me the ball and I'm a running back, I better get to running because I'm going to get hit. Right. right. Every time I get the ball, I'm not going to score a touchdown. So I got <laughs> to get used to not just getting hit but taking some hits and getting back up and running through some. I and mean, ultimately, the, the aim is to, is to score and win the game. So I hope that my career says that I've won a few games. Um, another quote that I've carried throughout my career, there are two. One is by a journalist whose name uh, is Don Terry. And uh, Don, I called him one time when I was at the Chicago Tribune. Hey, I'm, I'm 61. I can drop names. I'm cool whatever, it's true. And I was dealing with what I thought was a bunch of racism and, and unfairness and unfair treatment in the newsroom. And I said, Don, how do you deal with this mess? And Don, the first four words out of his mouth were, never internalize their disrespect. And I wrote those words down and I printed them out. And I folded it in like a cone as a triangle and I set them on my desk and I carried it with me throughout my career. And I still have those words today. The other time, the other quote is by a Pulitzer Prize winning Chicago Tribune photographer, his name is Ovi Carter. And I'll ask Ovi Carter the same question at another time of discouragement. And the first words out of Ovi's mouth you can't argue with excellence. Be excellent. And those are the two quotes that have carried me 
through my career. And so I tell my students when I level with them, I don't want to scare them to death, particularly my minority students, particularly my students of color, but I level with them. You're going to face racism in the newsroom. There's a reason that there aren't many Blacks in America's newsrooms. That's not by accident. It isn't by accident. And yet, you have to be excellent. Don't be wed to the newspaper or the news organization. A journalist's first obligation is to the truth. Our first loyalty is to the reader, to the citizen. Journalism is a discipline of verification, corroborating. And I said, we can give you oxygen. If we give you oxygen, we've trained you right, you should be able to go to the moon and do your job. Be wed to journalism in its pure form and what it is and do your job and be excellent in the craft that you are perfecting that God has put in you as a gift. And it will carry you as the Bible says before great men. Trust in God, even in the middle of a newsroom. You don't have to tell everybody where your trust and your hope lies, but you better trust in God and understand that he's bigger than the newsroom. And that none of the editors that I ever encountered had my career in their hands, not one. My career and my life is in God's hands. Wow. I'm speechless. Wow, that's deep, that's deep. How do you want to be remembered, John? How do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered first as a, as a good father. That was so important to me as a little boy. I said, my children will never forget what I sound like. They will never forget my face. I will always be in their lives. And let me tell you, at times, you know, I've been divorced and it has been a difficult road, but I can say that I have been a good father because I have endeavored to do that. I also, um, I guess, just want to be remembered as someone who cared and tried to do the best he could with what he, with what he was given. And I've tried to do that. Cool. Is there anything else that you would like to share while we got you here? I mean, y'all are waving in Ghana. Anything else you want to share with us? And, uh, it has been a wonderful, wonderful experience that I'm so glad I was able to share. I'm able to share with my family. And I hope that uh, if anyone else wants to follow, you can follow me at uh, Hear Africa Calling, H-E-A-R, africacalling.com, www.hearafricacalling.com. And that's part of the project that I'm putting together. I'm saving the best for last. The project is uh, uh, Africa Calling, Portraits of Black Americans Drawn to the Motherland. So I'm going to introduce folks to uh, African-Americans. Indeed, a West Side brother. Found another West Side brother here. Oh, really? He's from North Lawndale. Oh, yes. Ooh-wee. Okay. Man, we, we, was, we was dapping it up, slapping fives. It was just crazy. <laughs> Oh, he grew wow. up on Polk Street in, in North Lawndale, and, and his wife is from North Lawndale. 
and we were just like West Side. We we were crowded, <laughs> and all they say is they go to the Chicago brothers. They go to the Chicago brothers. <laughs> wow, that's funny. Yes. All right. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you.